The Marvellous Island by Saunders F. Nichols. Published in the Sydney Mail and New South Wales Advertiser, Saturday the 18th of August, 1888. Chapter 1. Mad Friend, Mad Dog. A little sun-dried, heat-blistered boat without mast or sail on a glassy sea under a vertical sun. The heated air is throbbing as though it boiled in the fierce noon blaze. In the boat, two lads, neither of them more than 16 years of age, hollow-eyed and thin of frame, whose parched mouths and dried, cracked lips toll of unslaked thirst. A gun, a few dozen cartridges, an axe, a couple of sailors' sheath knives, a few yards of light rope, and crouched in the bow, a large Newfoundland dog. We, Hal and I, had lain for, nay I not know how long, it might be three hours, it might be six, with eyes closed and motionless. This was the third day since we had drained the last drop of water and for more than a week previously, we had lived upon half a pint a day. Lived, do I say? Fought off death and madness with that driblet. Let those who would know what such life means try it, with a bare half pint of warm water. In the region of latitude 4 north and longitude 136 east, startled, I was compelled to open my eyes at the sound of that terrible voice. It was not George's, though it came from him. It was the dry, husky shriek of madness, but the madness of excited joy. He stood erect, with one foot on the seat of the boat and the other on the gunwale. His hat off, one rigid arm with extended finger pointing down at me, the other as rigidly extended and pointing down to the sea with maniacal delight. George, ha-ha! Again the fearfully hollow, cracked voice that appeared to come, that did come from him, and yet seemed not to be of him. Water in billions, George, billions of gallons! And flinging his arms above his head, as a diver does, he bent to spring into the sea, into the jaws of a demon shark. The huge, silent ghost that had never left us, for days past, as though assured of our failing to his lot at last. But as he thus poised himself for the dive, I was upon him, and, Ugh! grasping him round the waist, dragged him down, struggling and fighting into the boat. How he fought! I was naturally stronger than Hal, and he was more weakened by the want of food and water than I. Yet for a time, he mastered me. The doing so I knew meant death to him. For the instant I relaxed my grip, he would be overboard and food for the murderous fish. While the mad fever fit lasted, I did all I could do to maintain my hold of him. At last he got me by the throat, and as he all but strangled me, I had nearly let go my hold. Must have done so, but that at the instant Bruce, the old dog, barked hoarsely uttered a long, plaintive howl, and then sprang towards us, growling. This took off Hal's attention for a second, giving me time enough to pinion his arms and fall with him, he under me, to the bottom of the boat. 
There the frenzy left him, but not the delusion. For he begged me piteously to let him have one drink, only one drink. George, of all those billions of gallons. Taking my jacket, I put it under his head, and passing one end of the light line that was in the boat around his waist, I tied the other to the seat, fearing another attempt to jump overboard. I had no need to fear though, for he was too weak now to get on his feet. Rain, rain, how I prayed for rain. It was rain or death, unless indeed some ship hove in sight. My friend, my mate, my dear old chum, lay dying at my feet. He could hardly live through another day of heat and thirst, and by tomorrow night, he would be gone. Oh, the folly of that chase after the wounded turtle that brought us to this pass. When the two boats were lowered in the long calm for bird shooting, and Hal and I wounding the turtle rowed to secure it, and the storm swept up from the south as though it sighted the ship for its prey. Then, in the blinding sea drift, the huge waves and phenomenal darkness, we had all we could do to keep our boat from swamping, while what became of the bark we knew not. Then the night came on, and when the morning broke in stillness and sultry heat, the sea heaving in great swelling, sullen masses, we looked in vain for the vessel. That was now twelve days ago. The few biscuits we had were gone. The little water in the tiny four-gallon cask gone. For four days we had not tasted food. For three days not tasted water. And the heat. I used to say I loved the glorious heat of the generous sun. But then I was strong and vigorous. I had food and, oh, more than food, I had water to drink and shade if I desired it. Now, neither. And the heat seemed to me a fierce, unrelenting, maddening tyrant. My throat was dry, my tongue and mouth without moisture. My lips cracked and my eyelids hurt the eyeballs as they moved unmoistened in their sockets. And the skin of my body was dry as shriveled parchment. How could I ever have rejoiced in this accursed sun blaze? And Hal? Ah, Hal was worse. He was better too, for surely his madness was a merciful blessing of oblivion to him. He no longer asks for water. He lies quiet in his madness. But I... Am I going mad too? I remember these things vaguely flitting through my brain, and then suddenly my heart leapt with a joyful thought. The dog. Why, the dog was meat and drink. Hal should not die yet. But Bruce, poor fellow, he must. I turned to look at the grandioid fellow, reaching out my hand towards the double-barrel gun at the same time. But as I did this, catching sight of the dog... My arm remained outstretched, and I sat immovable, with eyes looking into those of the dog. He was crouched, as though about to spring, his eyes red and glittering, half out of his head, their gaze riveted upon me, the great ears extended and tremulous, 
his tail slightly waving, and a spumy froth exuding from his open jaws. The dog was mad. He was making a stealthy, noiseless forward movement, as though to get nearer for the spring. And I knew that in a second or two, he would be upon me. I knew, too, that any sudden movement of mine would bring him with one bound at my throat. I dare not remove my eyes from his. The canning of his madness would seize the unguarded moment to spring upon me. Was the gun loaded? I was not sure. We had shot a bird some days previously, and its rank flesh had stayed our hunger for the time, but had fearfully increased our thirst. I did not remember loading that barrel, but surely the other had been, and now remained loaded. The gun lay just in front of me, the butt resting by my foot, the muzzle inclined forward across the seat in front. A slight elevation of the butt and muzzle would cover the dog. There would not be time to bring the butt to the shoulders, no time to aim. Nay, in advancing my hand to the trigger, as I was stealthily doing, I was hastening his attack, for a deep growl escaped him, and he churned the scum that covered his jaws into a viscid froth. Still, there was nothing else for it. Unless I stopped him, neither Hell's life nor mine was worth five minutes' purchase. And, if I missed him, well, it was as bad, for I had no strength left to contend against his powerful frame. My hand touches the gun, but I never for a moment remove my eyes from those red and glaring ones that are with such fearful intensity watching me. The fingers glide into the trigger guard, are on the left barrel trigger. I cock the hammer, and the gun moves slightly. Ah, he is at me, gathering himself into a ball and uttering a hoarse, vicious roar rather than a bark. He bounds forward. I pull the trigger, but the next instant am struck down. My head is driven with fearful force against the gunwale, and I become senseless. To be continued. The Theft of a Day by Vera Dwyer Published in the Australian Town and Country Journal, Princess Spinaway's Department, Wednesday 28th of February 1906 It was at the end of a hot summer day that the lawyer broke the news to the four girls, just when the place seemed dearest to them. Kathleen and Cora were hosing themselves and the garden alternately. There were only a few cultivated beds near the house. The rest of the grounds was a wilderness where tall gum and wattle trees grew and blackberry bushes spread. Lena and Rennie had wandered down the drive to the shabby white gate at the end. They leaned against it, gazing at the old house with its wide, long veranda, their faces worried and unhappy looking. What... what if we do have to give it up? Lena said. She was 15, the oldest of the four. No, Rennie responded. We'll manage it somehow. Uncle Jack is awfully clever, you know. I shouldn't mind being a private secretary or something myself to earn some of the money. Rennie was 13. Don't be silly, said Lena. What could you do? We can't get nearly enough money to pay the interest. Uncle Jack's only earning a little bit, although he works awfully hard. 
Rennie was silent because she could think of nothing hopeful to say and she hated talking in this despairing fashion. Mr Leston is coming along the road, Lena said after a long pause. I wonder what he has to tell us, she spoke with anxiety. Perhaps Uncle Jack's found a gold mine, Rennie said, but it was only her words that were sanguine. Mr Leston was the attorney in whose hands was the charge of their dead father's estate. He was an abrupt old man and almost as soon as he entered he plunged into the subject of interest. I've received instructions from your uncle and guardian in Melbourne, he began, to settle the whole affair as soon as possible. He finds it absolutely impossible to meet the maze of financial difficulties surrounding the estate and he's come to the conclusion that he'll have to give it up. I'm going to the city next Friday morning to settle it all with Mr Davies. The shock was great, even though they'd all known before that the thing was almost inevitable. Kathleen and Cora joined them just in time to hear the woeful news. If only you'd wait another three months, wept Lena. Or even one month, moaned Rennie. Or a week longer, Kathleen sobbed. But next Friday? So soon. Cora's voice died away in accents of despair. But we can't delay, he told them gently. You see, Mr Davies refuses to wait any longer. The beast, Cora flashed. Mean, selfish wretch, said Kathleen. I hope he died in the gutter. Renee said passionately, but Lena was too miserable to speak at all, even in this strain. It had not been the intention of either Kathleen or Cora to rise in active opposition against the cruel decree of fate, but on the eve of the day when the estate was to pass into the hands of Mr Davies, Cora dreamt that she saw Uncle Jack with his hands full of sovereigns, and Kathleen and Cora believed in dreams. They discussed it in the old workshop, away on the other side of the orchard. This was a great shed built of high wooden supports. Tall gum trees grew thickly around the place and no one ever came here, except Kathleen and Cora, who used it as their playroom. A rickety flight of steps led up to the door, so broken and frail that there was always a chance of them giving way before you reached the top, or the bottom, as the case may be. The roof was high and brown and covered with cobwebs. Great rafters stretched across to support it. When their great-grandfather had immigrated to Australia many years ago, the place had been built for a carpenter's workshop, and there was still a carpenter's bench at one end of the shed. Today, Kathleen seated herself on a sawhorse and Cora on the floor, and Kathleen remarked that it was a good sign. Although, of course, dreams often mean just the opposite thing, Cora said. Oh well, it's that now, responded Kathleen. What a pity Mr. Lesson is coming today. We'll have no time to see, Cora exclaimed. They talked for an hour longer, and the tone of their conversation grew more and more excited. They were forming a plot, the success of which rested primarily on Mr. Leston calling in that morning before he went to town as he promised to do. It was nine o'clock now. They might expect Leston at half past nine. The short space which lay between the present and the time of the lawyer's visit, the children employed in bringing in mysterious parcels from the house to the workshop. You must bring him in here and talk to him and run out as soon as they've fallen, said Kathleen. But what if he runs out too, Cora said dubiously. But he can only walk. You must fly and get down there before he comes to the door. I'd rather you talk to him while I manage the other, said Cora but she yielded at last to Kathleen's arrangement, and then together they crossed the orchard to the house. Mr Leston was in the dining room talking to Lena and Mrs Osborne, the housekeeper. He was, from the bottom of his heart, sorry for these four girls and their young guardian uncle, so when Kathleen and Cora came in and begged him to walk across the orchard and inspect their doll's house, he agreed with alacrity 
delighted to please them in any way. I have just 25 minutes, he said, so we must be quick. The remark was altogether unnecessary, for the two were so excited and eager that they hurried the old man across the orchard at a pace far too quick for him, and he had to remonstrate with them repeatedly. They escorted him up the old, broken steps, which shook and creaked under his weight in quite an alarming fashion, but it was only Cora who went inside with him. Kathleen said she wanted to saw off a little jagged part of the landing where she had torn her hand on the previous day and where she didn't want Mr Leston to tear his hand today and that Cora could show him the dolls' houses. So Cora and the old man went inside the shed and Cora shut the door. She talked fast, her hands trembled and when the sound of sawing was heard outside, the pink in her cheeks became more brilliant. What the dickens are all those for? the lawyer asked, standing in front of the big bench at the end of the shed. Lemonade, cakes and whatnot? What are you going to do with them all? Cora scraped her throat and replied that they were to eat, then led him to the dolls' houses. A few minutes later, Mr Leston was sitting on the sort horse, the only seat in the shed, and his hands were piled high with dolls and their furniture, which she had desired him to hold as she made a clearance for her dolls' house. Even although she was expecting it every moment, a sudden crash just outside made her start. Her face was white to the lips now. before her eyes floated innumerable stars. With difficulty, she found sufficient breath to speak, but it was the moment on which depended the success of the whole scheme, and she seized it. I'll go see what it is, she cried in answer to the lawyer's startled look. Stay there and don't drop those things, whatever you do. She flew to the door, opened it, shut it, and stood on the landing outside. A landing which shook under her light weight, for the flight of rickety steps which led up to it lay prone on the ground, and Kathleen, a saw in her right hand, was rapidly descending a ladder which was placed against the landing. Kathleen shot a quick, scared glance behind. "'Quick!' she said in a tense whisper, and Cora followed close on her heels. Then they seized the ladder and dragged it away. And the lawyer was a prisoner in the old workshop." They heard him open the door and call them, but they did not turn their heads and ran on until they were far away on the other side of the orchard. It was so easy. It was done in a few minutes, Kathleen said in a queer, laughing voice as they ran. Oh, Corrigas, isn't it dreadful? There was no chance of escape for the lawyer. No one besides the girls ever went near the place now. The distance from the landing to the ground was too great to jump and there was nothing in the shed he could make serve as a ladder. But they had considered his needs. There was three bottles of lemonade on the bench in the workshop, a loaf of bread, some oily butter in a basin, a glass of apricot jam, some slices of cooked ham on a plate, a large raspberry tart, some little coconut cakes, a pillow, three rugs, a blanket, yesterday morning's newspaper, a candle and some matches. Mr Leston was going to settle the affair with Mr Davis that day, but if Mr Leston were not forthcoming, what then, Mr Davis? A moment's time was gained, a moment in which Uncle Jack might appear, his hands full of golden sovereigns. All day long, the two hovered near the place. It was a daring thing they had done, and they realised the depth of their crime. What if the dream meant nothing at all, or, as Cora has suggested, just the opposite thing? And if it were to be realised, how long must they wait? How long were they to keep Mr Leston shut up there? If the dream meant nothing, when would they be brave enough to set the ladder against the shaky landing and release their prisoner? And when he realised, what would he say? What would he do? What would Mr Davis say about the delay? 
And what would Lena and Rennie and Mrs. Osborne say if they knew where Mr. Leston was at the present moment? Was there any dreadful punishment to be incurred by shutting up a lawyer in a workshop and detaining him from his business? All through the hot, weary day they tortured themselves thus, until the sun got lost behind the dark blue hills and the trees in the orchard were only dusky outlines. A dozen times they had seen him that day, from behind a large tree, come to the door and look below as though he were contemplating a leap. Once, when he was inside, they ventured a little nearer and heard him loudly pronouncing maledictions on them, and the sound gave them shuddering feelings about the consequences of their action. The four sat out on the veranda in front of the house all evening, but for the greater part of the time, they were silent. Once, Rennie, in a sudden little burst of passion, said, Oh, perhaps we'll live in a house that smells new all the time you're in it. A house full up of modern conveniences. And Lena said miserably, It's all settled now. It isn't ours a single bit. But Kathleen and Cora were wondering whether a light were glimmering through the dusty, cobwebbed windows of the workshop. Whether Mr. Leston would be very uncomfortable lying there on the floor all night whether Uncle Jack and his sovereign-filled hands would arrive by tomorrow morning's train, or whether they would get a letter from him telling them that he had been unexpectedly left a large fortune, wondering how the miserable affair was all to end. The next morning, Cora proposed walking to the station to meet the express from Melbourne on its way to Sydney, just to see if Uncle Jack would step out of the train. But Kathleen said no. The vicinity of the workshop had a dreadful sort of fascination for her, as in fact it had for Cora too. And so, as soon as breakfast was over, they commenced their restless wandering from the house to the end of the orchard. When they were sitting on the veranda on their second visit to the house, wondering if Mr Leston had eaten up all they'd provided and whether he was hungry yet, they saw coming up the drive with swift steps a man in a light tweed suit and Panama hat. In his hand, only a travelling bag, but of course the gold might be stowed away in it. They screamed, Uncle Jack! and raced down the drive to meet him, Lena and Reddy following. His face was pale and worried. His eyes bespoke a sleepless night. Is Leston here? he demanded at once. No, Lena replied. He... Is it fixed up yet? The place? he asked eagerly. Yes, Rennie said. He... he settled it all yesterday morning. No, no, he said agitatedly as they reached the veranda. I wired to him last night telling him to wait till I came. Oh, it would be too late. Uncle Jack, have you... He flung himself into a chair on the veranda and explained hurriedly. I thought there was nothing to be done and we'd have to give up the place, but last night I got an offer to be a manager of a big station in Queensland. Splendid salary. I, I could have managed to keep it on. He laughed bitterly and proceeded. I wired straight off to tell Leston to wait and caught the night express. Has he been here today? No, he was going to stay with someone in the city last night. He won't be home till this evening. Uncle Jack stood up. I suppose I'd better run into town to see him, he said, but nothing could be done now. Kathleen and Cora were hanging to his arm, commencing an incoherent explanation, interrupting each other every moment and stammering in their sheer hurry to get on. We, we, said Cora. Shut him up, shut him up in there, said Kathleen. In, in the workshop, Cora added. Come on, said Kathleen. Let him out, cried Cora. We, we sawed off the, Kathleen commenced. The steps, Cora finished. We, but Uncle Jack stopped them by shaking them and demanding in a loud voice, what? He understood at last what they had done, that it had saved the estate from passing into the hands of others, and they all set off across the orchard to liberate the unfortunate old gentleman. 
Oh, I do wish we had a suit of armour for you to put on, Cora exclaimed as they hurried along. I'm afraid he'll be awfully wild, said Kathleen. Could you take the axe and say, touch me at your peril, Cora asked. But Uncle Jack refused all weapons, offensive or defensive. He placed the ladder against the wall and reached the landing just as Mr Leston came to the door. Oh, he shouted, and his face assumed a purple tinge. You cold-blooded young ruffians, you. Oh, sir, you're here, are you? Did you tell them to serve me that dastardly trick, eh? It's a wonder you have the face to come here and own the little wretches as your relatives, you... He stopped, evidently struck with the poverty of emphatic expressions in the English language. Uncle Jack took his arm and led him inside. The lawyer certainly had a right to be in a towering rage. From the bottom of the ladder, the four could hear him talking. Lemonade he detested, porky never looked at, pastries made him bilious, and he'd been walking the floor all night suffering from indigestion caused by eating one of those confounded coconut things. At last, he descended the ladder and stood on the ground below. We, we beg your pardon, the two sinners stammered. Ugh, you little vagabonds, he gasped, seizing them one in each hand, and he shook them till their teeth chattered. Then they all walked back to the house, Uncle Jack apologising and explaining all the way, the lawyer protesting loudly, and the four walking behind. "'Oh, you darlings,' Lena said. "'Oh, you little dear things,' Rennie cried. But the lawyer overheard their rapturous exclamations, turned about and stared at them fixedly. "'I'm... I'm so sorry,' Lena said in the utmost confusion, lowering her eyes. But as he looked at them, all the citadel of his anger gave way with a suddenness that astonished them. Deuce take it, he exclaimed with extreme heartiness. Sorry, then I'm not. Which, of course, was just about equal to saying that he was very glad indeed. Wasn't it? The End The Convalescence of Taffy Fanden by Ethel Turner First published in the Australian Town and Country, June 16, 1900. Nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. Will you have mutton broth or beef tea, Master Keith? Twenty-two, twenty-three. Master Keith, I'm waiting. Twenty-four, twenty-five. Susan, there are a hundred and thirty tassels on this bed. Thirty-two loopy-up things. Sixteen bits of lace and four knobs. My, are there really now, Master Keith? A hundred and thirty. Just fancy. Susan spoke in a humouring tone and gave the muddled up bedclothes an indulgent little pat. Don't be an ass, Susan. Taffy's voice was quite fretful and he gave the blankets a vicious little tug. Since he had fallen ill of measles four days ago now, All the servants had treated him in a commiserating, indulgent way. As if, he thought to himself, he was a baby, or at least an imbecile. Susan's good temper was imperturbable. And sixteen lace things. My Master Keith, but it's a fine pretty bed. If you talk like that, Susan, I'll throw the pillow at you. He wriggled down after a straying pillow and looked as if he meant it. Law now, Master Keith, what's the use of talking so? You'll catch cold and then what'll your mother say? Oh, go and hang yourself, cried Taffy impatiently. Susan took no notice of his irreverence and only asked again if he would have mutton broth or beef tea. 
I want some beefsteak, said Taffy decisively. A lot, too. I can smell it cooking downstairs, and I want some porter. I know Johnson's having some, and some cheese, Susan, and two jam tarts. Law, Master Keith, and the doctor said as how you were to be kept low, and after cook making you that nice beef tea and broth and arrowroot, and me mixing you jugs of lemon and toast water. Susan looked appalled at his ingratitude. Taffy groaned. Kept low? Good heavens, Susan! I'm as low as, as, low as, as, as that policeman of yours who kisses you round the corner. And a deal lower. You'll get nothing but broth, you ungrateful impertinent boy. And Susan flounced out of the room, while Taffy chuckled a minute, and then groaned again at the thought of the sago, broth, arrowroot, the low messes his very soul abhorred. The fever had abated, and the boy was in the servant's care today, his aunt having been called away. He felt much better, but was very cross and ravenously hungry. The doctors had seen him that morning and left him for the day under Susan's care with instructions to lie still and take care of himself. Susan looked in upon him now and again, and at her every visit, he waxed more and more impatient. The bedclothes were in a most astounding confusion. One sheet twisted almost to a rope was up at his shoulders. The other was in a ball at his feet and the blankets and counterpane were in a hopeless muddle. She and the cook both offered more than once to straighten them, but he refused with contempt. He hated a lot of silly women fussing about him. Susan was offended now, and Taffy sighed. He knew she would not come near him again till lunchtime, two hours off, and it had been some occupation and excitement to worry her. Susan, he called. Susan! Susan! Susan, he shouted the name in every key, with many variations. But no reply came from the lower regions, and he soon wearied. Then he played Springer's, an edifying bed game, by which the body is raised for a moment, and then brought down heavily on the mattress, the art being in the number of springs resulting from one drop. It is best played with two in bed, as there is not much fun in it without competition. So Taffy gave that up and shrieked, Susan! Cook! Johnson! At the top of his lusty young lungs. They flew upstairs in terror. He took worse, thought Susan. He's set himself on fire, said Cook. Whatever's the matter, Master Keith, panted Susan. Promise you won't tell, said Taffy. Well, it'll be April Fool's Day in nine months again. (laughs) This was too much for their equanimity. Susan declared no one should come up to him again. Not if he screamed till he was black in the face. And then she turned on her heel and went down the stairs, slowly followed by her fellow servant and a delighted, aggravating laugh from Taffy. (laughs) All right, said the young gentleman to himself. She was told to look after me. It'll be her fault if I'm worse. And then he deliberately got out of bed and shut and locked his door. He felt a little giddy and generally unsteady on his legs, but it was decidedly enjoyable. He padded across the room to the window and peeped out. His bedroom was in a side wing and looked directly into the street, although the other three sides of the house were surrounded by gardens. Two girls passed with their tennis rackets, and Taffy tapped on the glass and then hid. A smart carriage bowled down the road. A springless buggy jolted away out of sight. Presently, a small Italian boy with an organ and monkey came round the corner and slowly ground out Il Trovatore. 
Taffy raised the window sash cautiously. Hi there, he called softly. The boy looked up, saw Taffy, and held out his hat for a copper. Taffy shook his head. No likey the music, he said. How much you got today? Tuppence, said the lad laconically. I'll give you tuppence more if you turn your eyes around, called Taffy softly. Come up closer, can you do it? Could he? Don't all these little Italian waifs consider this part of their stock in trade? Have you never stood at a Sydney street corner and been accosted by one of these urchins, fiddle in hand? Give us a penny, they say in excellent English. You comply, perhaps. Then, as a reward, they sidle up to you, turn their eyelids completely over, and roll their eyes round and round in a bewildering, terrifying fashion, till you promptly give them sixpence to stop it. Not so taffy. He leant out of the window, watching the lad's contortions in breathless silence, as if fascinated. Presently, the boy stopped and held out his hat. Do the eyelid part again and I'll give you threepence, said Taffy. And as the mysterious rollings went on, he gazed with absorbed interest. Again, the hat was extended and our hero dropped in his coppers from his height. The boy showed his white teeth, turned to his organ and murdered Lucretia Borgia with great gusto, while the monkey capered about grotesquely. Taffy was enchanted. Nice monkey, he said. The lad nodded and adjusted its scarlet cap lovingly. Very nice monkey, repeated Taffy, and he watched its antics with longing eyes. Me like monkey muchy, he added. What for you sally him? I buy ye him. Tuppence, how many? The lad smiled a little contemptuously at Taffy's Italian. He had been born in Sydney. I couldn't sell Carlos. I've had him near six years, he said, hugging the animal up to his velveteen jacket. If you come down, I'll lend him you a bit. Taffy's eyes grew brilliant, and the colour came into his pale face. I can't come down, he said eagerly, but I'll give you a shilling if you'll give him me for a bit up here. I'll take care of him. Oh, do, just for an hour. The lad hesitated. It was a grand big house. His pet would be safe, surely. But there was getting him up. A shilling, six tuppences, said Taffy persuasively. Still, the lad hesitated and eyed the wall doubtfully. Carlos could not climb it. A shilling and threepence, cried Taffy impatiently. A gleam came into the sleepy eyes of Italia's dark-browed son. It's not enough, he said. All that waste of time. I'll lend him a bit for two shillings. One and sixpence, pleaded Taffy. Two shillings, said the boy inexorably. One and nine, ventured Taffy. The Italian picked up the monkey, as if to move away. Two shillings, or goodbye, he called. The monkey took its hat off with an irresistible gesture. Two shillings, said Taffy resignedly. The boy wheeled the organ close up. How you get him if you can't come down? I can't climb up and give him to you. Would a piece of rope do? said Taffy, wrinkling his brows. I could haul him up. And break his legs? Not if I know it. Have you a bag? Happy inspiration. Taffy stripped off a pillowcase in a twinkling and lowered it down, tied to a long rope that he always kept in his room. Carlos was placed carefully in by his master and amid countless injunctions was drawn up slowly, very slowly, by Taffy. Perhaps, dear readers, you've never tried raising from a low elevation to a higher one a lively, well-fed monkey 
encased in an embroidered belaced pillow slip attached to a knotted piece of rope. If not, you may take Taffy's assurance that it knocked spots off the hardest Euclid problem he had ever worked. Great beads of perspiration were standing out on his forehead and his knees were trembling in the oddest fashion by the time he had the animal fairly on the windowsill. Don't you go trying none of your tricks with him, cried its master, filled with anxiety as he saw the last of the live cargo disappear into the room. (coughs) Taffy reassured him. What are you going to do whilst, he asked. And then, as the monkey owner seemed uncertain, he was struck with another brilliant idea. He rummaged in his coat pocket and found 18 pence, confided in the boy he was almost starving, and commissioned him to go down to one of the shops and get him something to eat. What'll I get you? asked the Italian, with a feeling of intense admiration for a boy whose money seemed endless. Taffy pondered thoughtfully, got out a stump of lead pencil, and proceeded to make a list. I feel as if I want some meat, he said slowly. Can you buy cooked meat at the butcher's? There's German sausage and boiled beef, returned the Italian after some thought. You can't get no olives, though, up here. Taffy wrote down cooked meat, bit his pencil for a minute, and added two bottles ginger ale, coconut, dates, peanuts, two buns, two jam tarts, punches taffy, and raspberry drops. This list he wrapped around the money, dropped it through the window, and then devoted himself to Signor Carlos. Now, Carlos was a good-tempered monkey, and a well-conducted monkey, and an obedient monkey to his master. But the experiences of the last ten minutes were not calculated to impress him very much in his hirer's favour. The moment he was released from the bag, he clawed a handful of Taffy's curly hair, and, with an inimitable sound, half chuckle, half cry, sprang agilely on the dressing table. Taffy gave chase. Round and round the room they went, across chairs, over the bed, clatter amongst the washstand's paraphernalia. Luckily, or unluckily rather, the servants were engaged in their midday meal in their hall and heard nothing of the uproar. And presently the monkey gave a leap onto the bed, scrambled up by the mosquito curtains and took up a strong position on the canopy of the bed. Then it looked down scornfully, screwed up its eyes, bulged out its cheeks and protruded its tongue till Taffy almost choked with laughter. (laughs) A low whistle outside recalled him to the window. The Italian was standing below, laden with parcels. It is incredible how far 18 pence will go in a boy's hands. Down went the pillow slip again, and soon up, up, up it was hauled, with its freight of dainties. How Taffy's eyes brightened as he set out the questionable-looking delicacies and fell to with an appetite sharpened by three days dieting. That fatty-looking lump of German sausage, how delicious it was after a course of insipid mutton broth. Even though the ginger ale was of doubtful clearness, the tarts of last week's baking, the dates of squashy appearance, they were like ambrosia to the hungry, toast and lemon water-wearied boy. Carlos had watched the feast at first, in a supercilious manner from his height. Then, as Taffy took no notice, he scrambled down and squatted on the foot of the bed and gazed at the proceedings with interest. Finally, as the rapid demolition continued, a look of preternatural anxiety settled on his face, and he approached Taffy, sprang on the windowsill, 
executed a marvellous parcel and held out his cap. Taffy allowed him to join freely in the dessert of coconut and peanuts, and they soon were on the most amicable terms. But hark, what was that? Taffy sprang to his feet, and the monkey scuttled back on the bed in alarm. From down below came the sound of a groaning door. Taffy knew what it meant. The door between the kitchen and the outer hall always groaned in that way. Susan was coming up with his lunch. In wild haste, he swept up the remains of his feast into the pillowcase, lowered it to the waiting Italian, and drew it up. There was a step on the stairs, the well-known step of a housemaid's slipper down at the hill. Taffy knew the game was lost. There was no time for Signor Carlos to beat an honourable retreat, so he unlocked the door, flung a heap of bedclothes over the monkey, and crawled under the bed. Well, I hope you've had a nice morning, said Susan as she crossed the floor with the tray. Law, what a state the bed is in. Get out with you, Master Keith, and I'll straighten you up a bit. There was frantic wiggling under the mountain of clothes, but no small curly-headed boy emerged. Well, you get out, Master Keith. Law, how have you rolled yourself up, you tiresome monkey, you? Susan hardly knew how near the truth she was. She deposited the tray on the table with a bang. Then she turned to the bed and pulled hard, very hard, at the clothes. They gave way at last, with a jerk that sent her staggering a step or two back. Carlos, spitting with temper at his stifling entombment, and anxious only to be off the treacherous bed, leapt violently onto the woman's broad shoulders and stuck there with all the tenacity of his species. The wildest, most piercing and terrified shrieks that had ever sounded within the highly respectable walls of Hagley House reached the ears of the little band of servants below. Johnson was just conveying a delicate morsel of beefsteak and onions to his mouth and paused with knife midway, mouth and eyes frightfully distended. Cook dropped her tumblers of beer, turned as pale as her florid complexion would allow, whispered, the holy saints preserve us, and crossed herself piously. Bennett, who had more nerve than either, merely laid down his knife and fork and said, drat that boy, in a tone of utter exasperation. Then they rose to their feet and went to the rescue of their long-suffering fellow servant. In five minutes, Taffy was in bed again, with ears that smarted from Cook's unsparing hand. The monkey restored to its rightful owner, and everyone trying to soothe Susan's excited nerves and dissuade her from going into hysterics as she threatened. She thought better of it, however, after a glass of water had been thrown over her by Cook and suffered herself to be led away. But what would you have? He never did and never had done, and it was to be feared never would do anything that he should. In the natural course of events, therefore, he was not a whit the worse for his adventures. In fact, the fever seemed to have fled out of the window with the monkey, and his repast to have served as an unsurpassable tonic. The End You've been listening to the To Be Continued podcast from the Australian National University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories.